Okay, if you would please turn to the book of Ephesians. I'll be reading Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6. Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved Jesus Christ. Blessed is the reading of God's holy Word. And Father, now is this ordained ongoing ministry within the body of Christ called teaching. I ask that You bless it with Your presence, with protection in what I say. I ask that we have clear minds and that we have hearts that yearn to know You in all Your depths that we can never plumb totally which is good news, forever we will be excited about learning of You without end. But may this be a part of it this morning, to the glory of Your holy name. Amen. As we saw last week in our journey here in Ephesians and in chapter 1, Verses 4 to 6 brought up two huge, loaded words. Election and predestination. The election He chose. Same word. He chose or elected us. And He predestined us. And then again later, having been predestined by Him. And last week what I did is I presented to you an interpretation of election and predestination that is popular within the church world. It teaches that election is conditional. God looked down the hallways of time before He ever created in His omniscience and He foresaw, He saw who it was, which ones would of their own self-determining free will, choose Jesus, who would not, and He, before He ever created, decided, I will choose those ones who choose Jesus of their own free will. In other words, based upon God's foreknowledge, beforehand knowledge, the knowledge before those things actually happened, but He knows they would happen, That is the reason, that is the cause, that is the foundation upon which He makes a choice in choosing who will be saved. And He does it before the foundation of the world. And then, for a few minutes last week, working slowly through verses 4 and 6, I argued, no. You can't get that from this text. But rather... Election, or God's choosing, is unconditional. Those who are being saved are chosen based upon nothing that they have done or nothing that God foresees apart from Himself that they will do. He chose us to be saved. And He saves all those whom He chooses. And that's why any of us today find ourselves Christians, believers, lovers of Jesus. I see it. I believe God raised Jesus from the dead and He died for my sins. That was last week. Alright, this morning, what I want to to briefly do first is I want to give my own personal journey 
to how I came to believe in unconditional election. Remember two weeks ago, I began the sermon. I said Paul opens up the letter to Ephesians here in this long paragraph, this one sentence in Greek, telling us things about God and about our salvation that almost nobody believes when they first become a Christian. And that was certainly true of me. When I would read Ephesians chapter 1 and many passages like it in the New Testament, I would say, I know that it says that, but it can't really mean that. For ten years. And then ten years down the road of my Christianity... I had just graduated with my bachelor's degree in biblical studies with a minor in biblical languages. I had come to the place where solid exegesis of Scripture was of supreme importance to me. Which simply means, exegesis just means reading the Bible very carefully in order to derive from it the meaning that the human author intended when he penned it. And then, after graduation, I found myself in my first quarter at seminary, and I had to write an exegetical paper in my New Testament class on Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12, which says, And when Jesus was alone... Those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And Jesus said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Okay, here I was. I was at a place where I was committed to the inerrancy of Scripture and to a common sense exegetical method to say what is going on, what did Jesus mean when He penned it, and, and what's Mark's purpose in his narrative of putting it here. And yet, when I had to wrestle so intensely with the text, I was confronted with all kinds of my own theological presuppositions that whispered in my ear, this cannot mean what it seems to clearly say. And so some of you college students may do this 20, 30 years down the line. Some of you might have done that when you're in college or seminary or graduate school. You, you got to write papers and hopefully you just kind of save them and no one ever reads them but maybe your parents and your professor or a TA. But I went back and I looked at my paper that I handed in and this is how I concluded my paper. And I quote, back in 1991, Jesus clearly said that He intends many to not understand what He is teaching for the purpose that they don't repent and be forgiven. I wasn't done yet. Then I, then I said this, comma, but I have no idea why He would say such a thing. And I did. My ten years of Christianity up to that point gave me no capacity to understand that kind of talk from Jesus. That was 1991. Almost two years later, I'm still in seminary, the end of my second year, and I found myself trapped. I was being overwhelmed with biblical passage after biblical passage concerning God's sovereignty over everything and even over my own salvation 
And I was at a place finally where I knew I cannot run away anymore from this dilemma. And it scared me. Because the thought that God was absolutely sovereign in complete control over everything was really emotionally unsettling to me. But I was at a crossroads. I knew back in the spring of 93 it was only a matter of time where I would either end up hopefully convince myself biblically rejecting God's sovereignty or accepting it. And just because I knew I had the door cracked where I was going to entertain such thoughts that He is absolutely sovereign over everything, that frightened me. Because I knew the implications of that were huge. He chose me before I was ever born in order that I would come to faith and be saved in Jesus from my sin, be in the resurrection forever, enjoying Him. And He chose others. But He didn't choose everybody. And then the generality, this, this God is sovereign over everything. Over the murder of my brother when we were teenagers? Over all the child molestation that is happening right now? The murder, ISIS, the Holocaust, and on and on. Human history is an awful thing. Cancers that riddle bodies and kill my best friend when we're in fourth grade. So I just want you to know that when I had a wrestle with this initially and still today, I did it with fear and trembling. But I was stuck because I was at a place where I knew that my intellect, just meaning my reason, my logic, and solid biblical exegesis, I knew my intellect might end up agreeing that God is absolutely sovereign. But emotionally, I was not sure I would like it. Or that I could love God, if that's true. And for a serious Christian, a serious lover of Jesus and of the cross, that is a scary dilemma. Because what would it say about me if the God of my salvation is absolutely sovereign, and yet I feel I don't like the way He is. Now, you get a one-sentence summary. Finally, it was Romans 9. Arguing with my professor a lot and Jonathan Edwards' freedom of the will mixed with a robust theology of God's glory that finally were the straws that broke the camel's back of my resistance. So here I stand. Now, as we are, we have been... This is the third week, really. And we have been and will continue to be grappling with the sovereignty of God and in particular, its relationship to election and predestination. I have been and I want to continue to move slowly. And so, here's my plan this morning to mainly deal with what do we mean by God's sovereignty? We'll touch on its connection with election and predestination. 
And then the next time to come back and to give a... I'm going to attempt to just say, let's open up the Bible. It's all over the whole Bible. And then in particular, the New Testament, that God's unconditional election is just crystal clear. I will just try to show. And then I think a week after that then, I say, okay, let's wrestle with this problem of the sovereignty of God and the freedom of our will. So at this point, that's my plan. So, this morning, I want to lay out the big, huge thoughts that I was really wrestling through back in 1993, and still do, constantly going over these things. But these initial thoughts that I had to wrestle with, I had to deal with. Just start this way. We all know by experience and by the Bible that we have freedom. We human beings are free to will whatever we want. Okay. Did you see her arm? It came up when I threw a pin at her and she put her hand out. She's a terrible catch. But so it would... So, but does anybody see a string attached to her arm where there's a puppeteer up there? We all know we're not puppets. We all know she did that because she has a will. She saw the pain coming. She was a little shocked. There's nothing physiologically wrong with everything firing correctly where her brain says, arm go up and block the pen. She did that. She chose that. We all know this. We know we're not puppets where someone up there is moving our arms against our will or that we have no will to move our arms. All of us who love Jesus, we're Christians, we know we reached out with our hearts and received Jesus. John 1.12 is clear. But to all who did, this is an active voice now, this is we human beings being saved, our action, who did receive Him. To those who believed in His name. It is to them that God gave the right to become the children of God. I did that. We all know that. That's all true. But where the error comes in is in our desire to protect our idea of what that human freedom really means. And it causes us to go beyond the Bible and beyond reason and thus to deny the sovereignty of God. That's where we get into error. And so, sovereignty. What do we mean? A sovereign is a king. He's sovereign. His dictate is law. That's what we mean, human. Sovereign. What do we mean by the sovereignty of God? We mean that God has all authority and all ability, all power to do and act according to His will, unaffected by outside agents. He is absolutely free. This is where our freedom of the will, we get really confused. We're free, but we're not equal to God's freedom, and we are not more free than God. God is absolutely free. We are dependently free. See, God created, and because this absolute sovereign one did create, all lesser authorities than Him, all lesser wills than His will, are all dependent upon His supreme authority. That's true of Satan, and it's true of we human beings. All authorities, all powers, 
that exist, they operate either by God's command or God's permission. And therefore, all power, all authority, and all decisions flowing from creatures, whether demonic creatures, angelic creatures, or human creatures, flowing from our wills as creatures, all of that flow ultimately from God's will of command or His will of permission. See, this universe, it's not a dualistic universe. Christianity is not a a religion of dualism. There are two equal powers of good, who's God, and of evil, who is Satan, and they're dueling it out as equal sovereigns or something. That's not the biblical worldview. Satan is evil, but he is a creature. He is not outside of God's sovereign control. He, Satan, can only do, can only will, can only choose what God allows or permits. God's authority, God's power are ultimate. God is not forced ever. He's not boxed in by the creature that will therefore cause him somehow against his ultimate will to have to respond and act. No, he's sovereign. That's true of Satan in relation to God. That's true of God in relation to Satan. He's absolutely sovereign. It's true of God in relation to Pharaoh when he wants to free his people Israel. It's true of your sin. See, I wonder if anybody here in this room has an idea of God as sovereign. Yeah, He's sovereign, because we Christians never want to deny that word. He's sovereign. Yet, yet there are things that do happen in creation without God approving somehow that they occur. I mean, at least by His sovereign will of permission. Think about it. If God did not permit from His sovereign will the evil of the human race in Noah's day, If God did not permit the slaughter of all those baby boys in Bethlehem after Jesus' birth, if God did not permit, allow the sin of the Sanhedrin to railroad the Son of God in the middle of the night in order to get Him killed, if He did not will to permit those things, then that would mean there is an equal authority or greater autonomous authority other than God that caused those things and frustrated God's very will. In other words, something happened or did not happen that God neither commanded nor sovereignly permitted. That would be a horrific idea. And so if everything happens, at least by God's sovereign will of permission, His permissive will, then He must have decided or willed that those things happen. Which means He must have preordained that they happen. Just follow for a second. That which God allowed 
or decided to permit in His creation, unless you want to deny the omniscience of God, which some Christians have done and therefore gone outside the bounds of Christian theology, in my opinion. But if you hold to God's omniscience, there is nothing that He does not know perfectly clearly. Past, present, and future will therefore, before, and we've got to speak as humans, God ever created, He knew exactly what would transpire in creation. And then, He took His God finger and He pushed the button. Created. By definition for ordaining that those things happen. So God willed to permit all things. I mean, is there a Christian? I mean, probably is. But when you think about it, when you start to become a thinking Christian, is there a Christian who, who, who actually think God does not have the power to stop evil things happening right now in this world or at any time? Is there a Christian who thinks God was just unable to stop Pharaoh and his army? He did. God intervened. He intervened. And He killed them all. Is there a Christian who thinks God does not have the ability to save the Apostle Peter from Herod's sword? Herod had him locked up in jail and he was going to kill him. Could not God stop that? He did. Miraculously, He sent an angel and He freed Peter. I mean, could God not sovereignly intervene and stop Herod from killing James, the son of Zebedee, one of the twelve? Absolutely. Oh, but if you read the account, James was put to death. That means, as opposed to Peter, God chose to not deliver James from that early death at the sword of Herod. Could God actually not stop all the wickedness in the world right now? All the rape, all the murder that's happening as I speak. Or is there a power? Is there another autonomous being that is equal to God or greater than God that prevents God from actually accomplishing what He would really like? If anything ever transpired without God's sovereign permission, then God is not sovereign. And indeed, therefore, he would not be God. If God refused in His sovereign will to allow something that actually then happened anyway, then whatever was the cause, ultimately, since you say it's not God, had to be greater than God's will at that given moment. All right. I'm trying to speak slowly because I know you're either sleeping now or your mind is going. So I want to say this. Everything I have said so far about who God is and in His sovereignty, thinking, all thinking, Arminians and Calvinists, agree with. Remember those terms from last week? Historical terms. And an Armenian, how do you deal with election and predestination at its core? Calvinist, how do you deal with election and predestination at its core? So far, there's no disagreement. And therefore, all of us Christians trying to do our best to understand what the Bible is saying about God and salvation, understand it, we are all therefore confronted with the historical problem of evil. Philosophy they call it a theodicy. That second part, 
to see, from Dikaios, righteous. How do we justify God, Theo, God? How do we justify God, a good God, in this world? We're all faced with it. So I don't care how old you are. It's amazing how 13-year-olds can think. But have you never had the thought, no one's looking, showering or what, hmm, if God is sovereign, and as the Bible says, He is holy, He is righteous, He is good, then how in the world did He create a universe where sin and evil exist? I mean, did the evil come into the world against God's sovereign will. No. If it did, then He is not sovereign. And therefore, the existence of evil must have, in some way, been part of God's permissive will that He foreordained to come about. See, if you say, no, Joe, evil came into the world because God created humanity with self-determining, autonomous free will, and therefore they brought it. Okay. Let, the Bible never teaches there is such a thing to tell you the truth. I'm going to try to show that weeks to come. But let me assume that there is such a thing. You still have not gotten away from the problem. Okay, let's go with that postulation that there's such a thing. Is God not omniscient? Did He not know what that so-called autonomous, self-determining free will of human beings, what it would produce, and He saw every little detail of it in dark bedrooms across the centuries? Of course He knew all of that. He knew exactly when He goes, light be, and He creates, and He creates men. He knows everything that's going to transpire. And yet, He chose to create. And thus, He ordained what He knew would transpire to actually happen. He predetermined that sin would come about. the way it is. And since we know, because this God has revealed Himself in Holy Scripture, He is good. He is perfectly holy and righteous. And it's impossible for Him to sin. Therefore, if we can't go any further than that, and I said you can't go any further, but if we could not, we must as believers in Jesus Christ at least stand and say, I conclude therefore that His foreordaining that sin exist and be and come into the creation, somehow that is ultimately good. That is that God had a motive. God had a God-centered, God-glorifying motive that is good for His glory and good for objects of mercy. God's allowing that evil and sin be is good. The evil and the sin that He allows is evil and wicked and not good. It's bad. And we, dependent, finite beings, the creature who are involved in doing the evil and the sin, it is wicked that we do. And we are thus justly accountable for that which we freely like or choose to do. But God never sins. And He never does the evil. is an evil. But His ordaining that the evil and the sin come about is not from a sinful motive. It is from the highest of all motives. The glory of God to redound forever through 
salvation from that sin. He is always and forever has been an absolute sovereign control over everything that is not God. Nothing else logically makes sense, nor biblically makes sense. Just for a moment, listen to how Peter preaches his first sermon in Acts chapter 2. And in verse 23, he says, This Jesus delivered up. What do you mean? It means Judas. Sin. It means the high priest making the deal in his counsel with Judas. He means the Sanhedrin. He means Pilate. Jesus was delivered up to a torturous death. The only sinless human being ever. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. He's the one you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Oh, they're accountable. And God planned it. Or when the church, the early church in chapter 4 of Acts is together and they're going to pray and they're praising God in a big room together. I don't know who let out the prayer, but Luke gives us some of it. And this is how it went. For truly, O oh God, in this city of Jerusalem, there were gathered together against Your holy child, servant, Jesus, whom You anointed. Who was gathered together? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is sovereign. God knew before the foundation of the world that He was going to save sinners through His Son, Jesus Christ. His redemptive plan would include a perfect demonstration of His justice against sinners. And a perfect expression of His love and mercy towards sinners being saved from that justice. So when the Apostle Paul writes in our text, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world that we would be saved. That is God's loving purpose to predestine our salvation. Now, if we were merely simpletons, we can just simply not go through what I was talking about in 1993 in my life. Yes! Awesome! Love it! Because that doesn't bother us. That part that I just said doesn't cause the problems of us finite, sinful human beings. But what really bugs us is that God did not choose everyone be saved. And He thus evidently does not love all sinful creatures in the same way. 
And I submit that what at core irks us about it is our unbiblical assumption that God is obligated to show mercy towards sinners who hate His guts and willfully rebel against Him. And God's not. God is not obligated. He has zero obligation to show saving grace. See, if grace were obliged by God, if He owes everyone grace, then grace is no longer grace by definition. Grace is undeserved. God owes all of us justice. But He never owes mercy. Okay, I just let's be a little hypothetical for, for, for a moment. We here we are. We're here, we're all sinful, everything's broken, broken, broken. We know that here we are, we're in the predicament, there is a God, and we're all guilty and we're all sinful. Let's just stipulate that for a moment, okay? Alright. Let me give you some hypothetical options. Okay, from there, God could have not provided any opportunity for anyone to be saved. He would have done no one any injustice. Okay, but, but okay, what are we going to do with that? Okay, no one who understands the Bible just, you know, th- th- that's outside the bounds of Christianity. I mean, Jesus came to save. Okay. So, so that one doesn't work. Alright. God could have provided an opportunity for all people to be saved. Many, many Christians believe that. Okay? Third, God could have, not, not provided an opportunity, but actually sovereignly did everything. Sovereignly save Every sinner could have done it. Now, of course, it's so unbiblical that when people go that way, they're called universalist. Goodbye. <laughs> go, go start another religion. It's unbiblical. So that, that doesn't work. Not everyone will be saved. Okay, number four. God could have sovereignly done it. And therefore, Absolutely save some or many, but not all sinners. So there's only two of those four that biblical Christians think are possible. God could have provided the opportunity for everyone to be saved, or God could have actually sovereignly saved many, but not all. And throughout the centuries, and today, I, along with many other believers, are convinced that if God only made it possible for all to be saved, when you look at the rest of the book, no one will be saved. If God left it the, the last piece into our own autonomous, self-determining power, to apply what He gave us the opportunity for, we would all perish. In our sin. And so we're only left with one option. He actually saves some or many, but not all. He intervenes directly into the spiritually dead lives of some by raising them spiritually from the dead. It's called new birth. In order that in the hearing of the Gospel, they will believe and be justified and be assured of future glorification. For whom He foreknew, He predestined. And whom He predestined, 
He called. And they all come. Whom He called, He justified. Whom He justified, He glorified. Paul said, this is how I go town to town, city to city, and I preach Jesus. I preach the Gospel. We preach Christ crucified. We preach it indiscriminately to everybody. And this is what generally happens. Here, here it is. Hey, y'all got the opportunity, and there's a truth to that. If you will believe, you will be saved. But if it's only opportunity, Paul says, this is what happens. To the Jew, it's a stumbling block, and they reject the Gospel. To the non-Jew, to the Gentile, it is stupid and foolishness, and they reject the Gospel, and nobody believes. Except, but, to those who are called from among the Jews and from among the non-Jews. To them, something happens. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why did they believe? Because they were chosen, predestined, and then in time and space were called. Those who reject as fellow believers, which they are, unconditional election. I think what really at the core goes on, which is understandable, is that they believe it's more loving if God were to just provide an equal opportunity to be saved for everybody. But, what that would mean is that the saving work of Jesus Christ falls short of actually saving anybody. It just makes it possible. If they, as we're all (laughs) drowning in the ocean, and the lifesaver, He brings it all the way up, just an inch away... Some have the strength in themselves to grab it and reach it and be pulled ashore into eternal life. And others weren't quite strong enough and perished in eternal damnation. But those of us who believe in unconditional election, we see God doing so much more in the cross of Jesus Christ for us wrath-deserving hell-bound sinners. And that is that Jesus actually obtained our eternal salvation. He purchased not just the opportunity for the Apostle Paul to be saved, but from the foundation of the world, He purchased Paul's salvation. And it was time. Go get him. He got him. You know Jesus' speech, John chapter 6, where he said, All that the Father gives to me, all of them will come to me. Oh, that's so important because the next line, He wants us to hear it once we've come alive to Him. And whoever comes to me, I promise you, because I'm going to the cross, you will never, ever be lost. I will not cast them out. He goes on in that speech. There are some of you standing before me right now who do not believe. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. Hmm. Now, two more issues I want to deal with this morning. I feel them. We fallen creatures 
Whether we say it out loud or we don't at times, feel a protest rising. If God elects some to salvation, but not everybody, it just doesn't seem fair. And we forget that God is not under obligation to save anybody. And therefore, if God in His... He's bigger than we are. But if He's wiser than we are, if God in His eternal wisdom knows exactly what He's doing, and He has reason to save some, that in no way obligates Him to save everybody. It is God's divine right to have mercy on whom He has mercy. Now, a little twist on it. If, by, I don't think that's fair, and a person means, well, what I mean by that, I don't think God is just in the way He orchestrates redemption and salvation by saving many, but not saving all. A person who says that is just not thinking clearly. Every one of us sinners deserve, we deserve, absolutely we deserve, justice. Which means for us, condemnation. Justice is always right. If God condemns every human being and saves none, He has done no one an injustice. But if... For His eternal reasons and purposes, He decides to have mercy on many, but not on all. What do those others that He did not choose get? They got justice. He didn't do anybody an injustice. Absolutely. The saved, they got Mercy delivering them from the justice they deserved. And he actually did that justly by Jesus. That's why he sent him. But they got mercy, not the justice they deserved. The unsaved, they got justice. They did not get injustice. And in the end, we believers in Jesus, we just must trust God that He knows what He is doing. And that it will redound perfectly to the glory of His grace throughout all eternity in the way He so chose to create and redeem and glorify. Now, one more thing. For the last 23 years or so now, I have found that many of us Christians try to save God. We try to get God off the hook as the sovereign one and all this stuff happens and there's a real hell and God never sends anyone to hell. Kind of just, I don't know, He wasn't looking that day and it happens. And we want to save God. But one of the ways it does, when you bring up, okay, just slowly, if they ask me, yes, I believe that. You mean God chose before the foundation of the world to save not everybody, but these ones? Yes. Well, I don't think that's biblical. Oh, okay. And so, they'll point me to 1 Timothy 
2.4, for instance, where it says, God desires all people to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now, just for a minute, not sure it actually means all human beings there. I just want to be honest with you. But let me assume it does, which I usually do then. Okay? Let's just say every human being, Adolf Hitler to Mother Teresa, every human being born, God is, I desire them to be saved. Okay. Let me, you and I, this is, I'll be the Calvinist here. And they'll be the Armenian. Yes. Okay. Don't run away yet. Don't run away. Let me ask you a question to this Bible-based Christian. Okay, let's just take that at face value that God desires every human being to be saved, okay? Do you believe that every human being will be saved? To if they're Bible Christians, their answer is no. There are people that will go to hell because they will refuse to believe in Jesus. Okay. How do you explain that? Okay, you've just said your God desires that they all get saved. And His desire doesn't come about because they're not going to all be saved. There are only two possibilities. So let me, so I ask, let me, do you believe the first possibility? And that is this, that besides God, there is another being in existence that is equal to God or more powerful than God that therefore causes God's desire that all be saved not to happen? Well, of course, Bible-based Christians say, Absolutely not. Okay, that's not the answer. Then there's, I can only think of one other answer to that problem. And that is this. Evidently, God wills something, desires something or wills something stronger or more or greater than He wills the salvation of all people. And that's why they're not all saved. And the Arminian and the Calvinist both agree on that. We both agree. The Arminian, if you, logically, the Arminian agrees. God willed to create a world where real human beings will suffer eternal punishment. Indeed, He preordained it. Because the Arminian believes in God's omniscience. He knew exactly what would fall out and he pushed the button of creation anyway. He did it. God predestined the damnation of many according to the Arminian. And the Calvinist, no disagreement. Where do we differ? We differ on what is it that God willed more than He willed the salvation of all people. The answer to the Arminian is that God willed that human beings have an autonomous, self-determining free will above the salvation of all people. When He's weighed the centrality of humanity and its free will is so precious to me. It's going to cause the damnation of untold numbers of human beings forever. Yes, but that's so precious, I'm going to put it in to creation and cause it to happen anyway. And for the Calvinist, it's not the answer. But what God will above everything, even the salvation of all people, is the extension of His eternal glory going outward through creation in a world where sin is 
And thus, the redemption of His eternal Son becoming one of them in order to save those whom He elected so that His glory in redemption of those who were lost and are found will redound forever and ever and ever. Paul put it this way in Romans 9. God desiring to show His wrath and to make known His power, He has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of His glory for vessels of mercy which He has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us Christians, even us whom He has called. And no wonder Paul wraps up Romans 9, 10, and 11 with the great doctrine of God's eternal purposes in election with these words. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been God's counselor? Or who has given to Him a gift that God should repay us? No one. For from Him and through Him and back to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So as I close, this is why with great, great confidence, I say now and we Christians should say to our dying day, every person on earth is to be invited. Invite them. Every person in this room is invited to come to Jesus if you're heavy laden and burdened and you want eternal salvation. Come. And here's the promise. If you believe that Jesus is God the Son in true humanity, if you believe that He died on the cross for your sins, if you believe that God raised Him bodily, humanly, from the dead to a glorified, eternal state, and He'll come back again and raise from the dead all who belong to Him to enjoy God forever. If you believe that message, that just come and trust that, you will be saved. I promise you, you will be saved. And if He's yours right now, and you know that, take deep, deep comfort in this great salvation. Because your Savior has secured you from beginning to end. Amen. Father, oh, that we would learn and learn by Your Spirit and be trained to love Your sovereignty to rest in Your sovereign hand. Oh, Father, that we would see, we could cry out, Abba, Daddy, for You are ultimate and we are not. To 
whom else shall we go for life but to your Son? And it is amazing, Father, to us. Yes, we know we will. Yes, we know we heard the Gospel. Yes, we know that we had something happen in our heart. We changed and we saw it. And then we turn around and look at that sign. Chosen. Before the foundation of the world. Father, I pray that the security and the intimacy you mean by such glorious truths be happening in us, your people, to the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.